0: Australia. There's
1: fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms blooms, so, as you far know, as But I ain't spending any time on it. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Give me my Don't stop wearing the
2: Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics.
1: It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult.
2: Welcome back to the Batuda Advocates Decode Podcast. A new series that we've released. We're a fair few episodes in now leading into the federal election where we're interviewing candidates and we're interviewing sitting MPs from right across the country. We're also interviewing different people who work in the background of politics. We're putting together quite a summary of how things work in Canberra from the National Party to the Greens to the Liberals to Labor and to different independents across the country. Today, we're actually very excited about today's guest because we're zoning in on the third force from Queensland, the KAP Party. Now, Bob Carter has been a, uh, a regular, I guess you'd say, feature on the Batuta Advocate over the years. He really gets our way of life out here in the uh, Diamantina Shire. And uh, he represents a lot of people, be they in Western Queensland, all the way up north. Today's guest is running as a candidate further north than Bob, would you believe, uh, north of the Kennedy electorate in Leichhardt. He has a distinguished career in a whole range of different areas, starting with as a young man playing rugby league football professionally right across the country, and then moving into community work, education, and of course, organising Uh, with young people up there. He's uh, announced that he's running for KAP, and uh, a lot of people are excited. A lot of people in the community are excited up in Leichhardt because there really are only a couple options when you start getting that far north. The Liberal Party, it's so far north that the National Party doesn't even get a look in up in the very tip. uh, Well, it
0: is the Liberal and National Party.
2: Yeah, it's the Liberal and National Party. It's a bit different to uh, how things go in the Maranoa, where David Littleproud's still very much national.
0: Yep. The ghost of Joe's still lingers in the Queensland LNP. And uh, today's
2: guest is is completely third party to all that, running for CATA.
1: Thank you for joining us, Rod Jensen. Yeah, gentlemen, thank you for the uh, the invite. Much appreciate being on the show. Looking forward to having a, a little chat with you guys and see where we're heading.
2: Well, thanks for joining us, Rod.
1: The first thing we want to ask is, where'd you grow up? Uh, look, I grew up on the Atherton Tablelands, and I'm Aboriginal, Torres Strait. My dad's English, Danish, Australian. Right. <laughs> so, I'm a bit of a mixer. I kind of just flow in all areas. But- Traditionally, my grandmother grew, grew up in uh, Horn Island. My grandfather was born on Prince of Wales. They were moved off the islands around World War II, and then they came down to Atherton Tablelands. My mother actually grew up in Babinda, uh, down here on Atherton Tablelands. My father's uh, side of the family came over in the early days and were given was given land, and they had farming properties up in Gelatin, the top end of the basin there. And we looked after horses and uh, also piggeries. So, the journey from there just sort of muddles around. People did a lot of moving around in the uh, the, the late 60s, early 70s. So.
2: so, a real North Queensland job. You're not an outsider, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, look, and it's an interesting one. The uh, the boundaries have moved around a little bit through Kennedy and Leichhardt, and uh, everyone's like, well, you have to be living in that space. And um, I don't know if living is enough just being there every single day on people's doorsteps. Um, they want to a finite address to places but uh, as you know far north queensland and and north queensland is a large large place so you can be somewhere and not really anywhere at all
2: (laughs) you want to tell us a little bit about your story leaving that part of the world because you ended up down there in adelaide which is a it's a
1: long way away what was your journey
2: you know prior to politics
1: it's a, a journey for me and and people find this a little bit interesting but i think everyone's journey is as a young person growing up in Atherton Tablelands, uh, we saw a lot of regulation coming in. My father actually worked in the uh, the logging industry back in the day, uh, in the tobacco industry, and we saw all of these things shutting down. So, as a as a young person, I'm looking for that springboard into life after school. I just couldn't see too much happening. There was a lot of a lot of unemployment, a lot of industries being shut down, uh, a lot of change of thought. You know, government was sort of just talking about Brisbane at that stage, and, I, and I'm talking in the late 80s, early 90s, um, and I, I made a phone call. I personally made a phone call to get out of the area and move to a boarding school. So I moved down to Cairns at St. Augustine's and spent most of my senior years there. Now, probably while I was being looked after in the community areas up in Ravensau and around those places, the community was fantastic. When I came to St. Augustine's, people sort of just saw something in me and started to foster the belief that you could do something else. And I was kind of looking for that. Can you tell us about that phone call? How, how do you, who, who do you call? It's an interesting one. Back then, it's a phone booth on the on the side of the road, you know, and um, there was an expectation. I think we just grew up a little bit different back when I was when I was young. Things have definitely changed. But um, I took an opportunity to take a couple of silver coins, 30 cents, and went down to the phone booth and, and made a... A conversation. I started a conversation on the side of the road talking to St. Augustine's arm. I don't come from money. I come from a hardworking family. Just and this is the reason why I'm in. I want to speak on the behalf of those people. I come from a hard working family. My mum's a nurse. My dad worked in logging in. She, as I said, I make a phone call and say to someone, look, I don't know what life has for me here. But I want to stand up. I want. I want to have something for myself afterwards. So the conversation kind of went down the line as I don't have funds to come, but I'm sure there's something else I could do at your school. And they sort of spoke to me about sporting scholarships and bits and pieces. And at the time, I was playing rugby league in the local division up there, the in Rugby League. And I said, look, I, I think I'm I could be pretty good at rugby league. And they said, look, come down and have a trial. And um, powers to be, Lionel Williamson. A rugby league great here in far North Queensland sort of said, Come down, had a look, and he was like, This kid can do something, so it all transpires that I end up getting down there I get a sports scholarship, and um, I put my best foot forward and, and I will say also that um heading to St. Augustine's I was probably on the back end of not being able to read and write. I was a young person that sort of been forgotten from education. Um, I spent a lot of my time without a disability and that's a bad word to be using now but they had disability units that separated those that were having barriers and those that could do mainstream and for some reason Indigenous kids always ended up in the uh, disability unit. So me and my brother, I spent a lot of time in that area but when I came down to St. Augustine's, things changed. People were like, oh hang on a moment, this, this young man can do some stuff. I left St. Augustine's Probably in the best shape of my life, I ended up going to South Australia. And at that time, like it's not a big thing, but um, my wife now and I made that journey. So, I met my wife when I was 13 in Ravenso, and uh, I think they say it's dating now, but I think we had a fairly strong courtship during that period and we made a decision. So, that phone call and the idea of, hey, we can do something, we move away from the and Tablelands and with a plan to always return. <laughs> we we watch too many people the leaders of the community go and follow those things into the city and never return. And I certainly wasn't that. We head to South Australia. I take up work, play in the you know Australian Super League. Two years later, Australian Super League folds, ARL and Super League merge, become the NRL and I head off to Canberra. Spent five years over there playing for the Canberra Raiders and starting my teaching degree over there. And then luckily enough, being able to work hard and, and, and put time on the ground got me to where I really wanted to start, back at the North Queensland Cowboys, where I should have been yeah. at, the, at the beginning. But came home, spent a bit of time there, finished my degree, and yeah.
2: Now, we don't want to talk too much about your football career. I'm sure Bob shoots your, oh, your ear off about it. But I want to talk about being what I imagine is you know a well-known footballer in North Queensland, a young prodigy, and then landing in Adelaide for this new club, the Rams, in a town where – Rugby league really wasn't the game. What was life like at that point? I'm sure it was different to Canberra and North Queensland. Cowboys, that's for sure.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, being a young person, you're always told that the world is your oyster. My wife and I went down, my girlfriend and I went down at that time, and we didn't have any support. So we just went about the normal things. What I called normal. Now, not so normal. Like, it's very difficult. Times have got a lot harder. Went to South Australia started to get my licensing sorted. It was easy. The process was simple. I went and got myself a house with the support of the club. I'm not going to say that it was on my own, but we got to end up getting the house. My wife went off and, and worked. She was doing university at the time. I went off and got myself a, uh, I was doing a diploma of law. So I was down at the Torrens Valley Institute of TAFE and I was working part-time at a law firm, just filing well, some files and in the afternoon off to training and then playing on the television on the weekend it was seemed to me very normal that is not the process now it becomes very difficult for kids to get involved in things like that but you know we take the steps to do that and we start planning things out and um you know like what am I I'm 17 at the time 17 and a bit now I'm being told that kids stay at the house to you know, twenty five thirty, so we're definitely going backwards in giving people the opportunity that I had. Regulations and how things have changed are very different. So
2: now um, the catters, um, both Robbie and Bob, and and everyone else involved in the party, they talk a lot about keeping kids out of trouble. It's one thing to be uh, a kid in a country town with nothing to do; you can find yourself in trouble. It's another thing to be a seventeen-year-old in the NRL. How did you avoid the riffraff that I'm sure, you know, especially in Adelaide where there's no eyeballs on you and you're surrounded by a bunch of guys who grew up in leagues clubs? How did you do that? Because you were filing cabinets as a 17-year-old. I'm sure there are a lot of blokes at the pub every
1: night. I certainly don't have an answer for that. If we had answers, you'd be doing other things. However, I will say that um, certainly for me at an early age, I understood that I had no legacy i wasn 't one of those kids that were well, your dad played or your uncle played or someone 's given you favor here to get you through. I certainly was the guy that was in the backyard, just making sure I was doing my tackling practice, getting dirty, getting dusty, making sure that if something was an opportunity, I was always doing it and you know I, people say now stay busy that 'll keep you out of trouble and and certainly that was my my goal when I left far North Queensland you know. People talk to me about how many jobs have you had and I will say to them, I don't know how many jobs I've had because I've worked on that many fruit farms as a kid. And when people say working on fruit farms, I'm like, man, I I carried 60, 70 kilo tomato buckets out of a 150 meter row and I carried that down to a truck. It's interesting as we go through all of this because people are saying to me, what credentials do you have to step up? to become politician. I'm like, all I'm asking right now is for, for a title. Someone needs to put something on the front of the desk because we've been doing this all of our life. We transitioned through life doing the political thing, except now I'm asking to take the voice of the people to the places it needs to go.
0: Now, Rod, I just want to talk a little bit about the uh, division of Leichhardt. It's 150,000 square kilometres, as we did say before it's very big country up there in in the Gulf and up in the tip, it's about the same size as Greece. But eighty percent of the population lives in and around Cairns. So is that where most of the focus is uh, this campaign for Canberra?
1: If you if you listen to the major parties, it is. Yep. And I'm not I'm not mudslinging there. It's just. I don't know how much time they're going to spend in the outer reaches. And the honest truth of it is, Cairns is, you know, it looks after itself. There are tourist industry, you know, there's a lot of big business here. I just feel that there is more to be had out of far north Queensland. While you're saying that Cairns is the hub, yeah, 100%. But I think if you open up far north Queensland to the Torres Strait and the Cape, there is much more to be had. There is more expansion to be had. I think. Um, The one big thing that you have to recognize here is that the large Indigenous population that is from Cairns transitioning all the way through the Cape and the Torres Strait, I think that that voice is often missed. And I want all of Australia, not only just Far North Queensland, to realize that we are in a seat that um, not every single individual has the same rights. And where we are standing, the incumbent said, isn't it beautiful that the democratic process allows everyone to stand. And I stand here as an Indigenous Australian, a First Nations Australian, along with another First Nation female Australian and another female. And I say it's not been a very long time for all of us to be standing here. And if you look at the history since 1950, yeah, I think one demographic has stood out quite strong. We've not all had the same voice. And unfortunately that voice has been Cut down to only half the population. The linen shirts of Port Douglas, mate. A hundred percent. Oh, that's a and look, and that's a beautiful spot. And, and uh, I'm not going to pick on the guys. They've got a very, very unique little spot there, and they've been able to build on that and make sure that their luxury has continued throughout the time that we've been here. And certainly, a couple of roads around the outside of them look really nice. But if you start to head onto the uh, the northern Great Northern Peninsula. <laughs> you're going to hit dirt real quick. Yeah. <laughs> and I look at it and say, yeah, look, it's not just those locals, but it's the, the cattle industry that's being held up. It's the, the tourism industry that's being held up. And it's those small businesses that are being held up because the local major parties are looking at specific niche areas to work, and
0: that's where the built-up population is. So,
2: Yeah. So you've got, as Errol just said there, you've got an enormous electorate.
0: Although – It is only the third largest in Queensland. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, we've got the Marinara, we've got Kennedy. You've got a lot, you know, a lot of Indigenous voters. And I shouldn't say voters because they're obviously citizens and people. But, you know, that's a consideration that I'm sure Warren Inch, even if he is not saying that on stage at the debate, is considering. But, you know, North Queensland's an interesting place. And Bob knows this better than anyone. You're dealing with a lot of different demographics, you're certainly dealing with a lot of different religions. I mean the Atherton Tablelands you, you could mistake that for southern Europe in some towns you know what I mean and with those industries bring different types of people fruit particularly and then uh, you know further north the tourism I mean you get up into the top of the bloody Daintree and you start meeting people from Russia who are out there catching crocodiles how do you speak to all of these different people because there's so many different personalities and so many different characters is that just, a? I guess, the North Queensland intuition where you just got to talk to any man or woman standing before you and, and get on their level?
1: No, I absolutely think it is the case. It doesn't matter who the candidate is or the party, to be honest. I think Far North Queensland is just down into to the dirt people. They want to talk about what's going on in their lives, how their businesses are going, what their children are up to, how they see how Far North Queensland can also join the economic boom that's... Our government believes that we're going through. Yeah. You know, at the moment, I think the way they look at it is that we're all here, as you said, third largest. However, for some reason, our voice is never heard. The constant barrage of lobbying and going into, flying to Canberra, going down and doing that and coming back with nothing has become the life journey of most of these companies or most of these families. And then even when they do get a voice, it's always like, well, we're just going to give you the scraps of what you could have. You know, it's very easy. If you fly into Brisbane at the moment, cranes are in the sky. They are constantly building population growth. It's exploding. You come to Cairns and the council says to you, man, our population is almost at a point where we won't have drinking water. And how many cranes are standing in Cairns at the moment? Two. Two. And I'm like, well, how can we be there at an explosion of population, but nothing is being done? Housing is out of control. Education is on a teetering point. And then everyone's saying, well, youth crime. And I'm like, yeah, that's because we don't have the infrastructure and no one has had forethought to say, well, in a moment, we're about to have a train crash. We're going to just watch that happen in slow motion and then react to it.
2: The youth crime is the people jumping off the train before it crashes. It is absolutely the
1: symptom. You know, like everyone's like, oh, well, I have the flu, but I'm not going to do anything about it until it's full blown. Hey, you've been coughing and your nose has been running for a period of time now. You need to do something before it gets to a point where it, you have to go to the emergency room. And often I think Far North Queensland is always in the emergency room before someone comes. At the debate, there was a uh, young community member from Machen's Beach said, oh, it's awesome that all of these guys are getting funding for the flooding Like, we really want to support that, but we never see the same outcome when we get smashed by a cyclone or the roads are cut off and we don't have any food on the shelves. Like, there is no infrastructure that flows in behind that. There is no emergency help that comes. And if it is emergency help, it's usually insurance companies that then just bump up the insurance premiums. Yeah.
2: That's an interesting point you make there with the youth crime because that's the only thing that makes the news in the South is uh, uh, they're out of control, the kids are out of control, the cars, the break-ins, everything like that. Obviously, all very warranted issues and affects the way of life for local people. No one wants that. No one wants to have to deal with that. But it can be played as a bit of a dog whistle. It certainly is in Townsville. You know, with someone who's got all of these ideas and all of these, you know, you're pointing to all these other symptoms. How do you get past that? Far North Queensland is a very egalitarian place, in many aspects on the street between people. A lot of people grew up together, different colours, different backgrounds. But when you start getting into this you know, local media and local politics, it's very easy for people to be pitted against each other. And that distracts from these things you're talking about here, like the fact that we're running out of water.
1: Look, there are a couple of things that uh, governments are going to always jump on. And if you're really a student of society – and you really want to have an informed opinion before you go down to the pub and yell at each other, you need to look into it. And I was only at, say, a um, community gathering two weeks ago, and uh, it was out in the Edmonton area, and uh, they're looking at putting in a alcohol and drug rehabilitation center for youth, which are on the actual idea of it. You need to have those things. There are kids out there that are going through some stuff. It's a medical thing. We need to get it sorted. We don't have those in Far North Queensland, but there is an idea that with that comes crime. And I'm like, ah, that's disappointing to see. However, the police stood up and they gave a snapshot of what's going on in that community. And they're like, I don't think you really see what's going on because yes, there is some crime. However, most of that's being dealt with. And you have almost 100% compliancy of the youths that have gone through that trouble with everything that the courts have told them. There was one child that was on probation and that child is 98% compliant within the regulations that have been given to him. It's very difficult when you see just the other end where Facebook and all of these pages are jumping up saying, oh, my car got stolen. I totally understand that. I'm with you. You said yourself, we don't want that to be happening. but. What are the precursors to that? And I'm going to say, I don't want to use COVID as an excuse, but COVID unseated the apple cart for the pure reason that no one could go and do the activities that they were normally doing and which was their schedule. When you've got people that are unemployed, their families are unemployed and low financial reward at the house and there is no licensing so you can't go out and have activities, school becomes a very attractive thing take that away from the kids which which happened they shut shut the gates for quite a while some kids got online 100% my children did they were in the catholic diocese here they they jumped online they had in, interaction with the with their friends at school with the school teachers and they just continued to some normality some kids did not and i will say to most of the community you need to look at who's saying that's looking after education at the moment because many of those kids that are creating or well, have issues with crime, around about that 10 to 14 mark. And I will say to you, has education gone out and got those kids? Have they opened up the gates fully yet? Are they participating in schedules that they would normally have that curbs the idea of them being out in the street? I saw comments from Townsville saying these kids are creating crime during school hours. I get it. Why are they not at school? But more importantly, has school said that they're open yet? I know that they've been talking about a massive teacher shortage. They've also been talking about mandates, you know, like these sorts of things that are actually creating some of the issue. And I know the government's not talking about mandates at the moment, but it was the Queensland Human Rights Commission came out and said mandates for early childhood teachers and age homes is unconstitutional. That's three years after they got forced to do it, And teachers are leaving in droves. If you don't have teachers, you don't have kids in the classroom. And it's easy to say that the kids are out there doing something, but we as a society and as a community aren't supporting the kids themselves.
2: Can you tell us about the first time you started having thoughts about, you know, I mean, it sounds like a lot of your thinking and a lot of your working life, you've been politically minded in one way or another. But when were you actually thinking, okay, Canberra, when were you thinking, oh, that could be changed in Canberra or that could be changed in Brisbane, like these issues could be taken down there. When did you start thinking politics? And furthermore,
1: what took you and drew you and brought you into the KAP fold? It's very interesting. You never, you can't become something you can't see. So growing up in so it was all just about small community. This family looks after that and they're going to invite people to do in, and we do a truck raffle. That's about as close as you get to government. Going into the NRL showed me something else. I recognized quite quickly that being a part of a conversation and being visual in a conversation allows a conversation to grow. And I've just lived by the philosophy. If I'm going to do something, I need to tell other people so then they can hold me accountable. And I think that that's where government needs to be right now. You say it, you do it because I'm going to hold you accountable. And don't get upset if I tell you that you haven't got there because I'm the person that's going to hold you accountable, not you. So the idea of being in the NRL and understanding, you know, like – being a professional athlete is a difficult thing. No one ever signs up to be a role model. But as soon as you get a contract, which is an interesting concept, it's just work, you become the morality for society. You have to be doing the right thing. Do you know that thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of kids are watching you? There is a part to play. And I, and I certainly took that on board to say, well, I'm going to be the person that if a kid is looking at me, I'm hoping I'm doing the right thing. I just moved towards that and it slowly starts to increase and then you you work on a program. I know that the NRL had one, Learn, Earn, Legend. I don't know if yeah, you guys yeah, remember yeah. this. I remember time. that one. You know, like it was getting around, making sure kids are doing the right thing, be at school, use sport as a carrot, and then everyone else has sort of turned something into it. But that was a program that went away. And I'm like, wow, why? Why did that go away? And it was just because someone in Canberra decided on the ground – There, not actually in the community. The community doesn't need that anymore. Like They do need that. It was working. We were doing the right thing. And then they just carved it up and a lot of other people did it, but it doesn't wash out. It's been diluted to something else. So I'm like, well, we need to continue these programs. How does that program get washed away? And it was just like, well, no one spoke from community that you continually needed that. No one said in the societal field that this is actually working. Continue that process. I was like, well, who, who does that? And there were no advocates because when I was looking around it, oh, the people that are in it are just lobbying for other things. It is what it is. Townsville always needs a new football stadium apparently, so they were always <laughs> working towards that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so they're going to have things that wrap around what the government requires for that. And I can see it, but at the back end of it, I'm like, well, oh, would Townsville have taken something else rather than a football stadium? Because they still had one. You know, like you still were able to do something. And my gripe with that is that as young kids, we helped lay the, the turf over there at 1-800. Now we're not at the same stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of burns a little. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so. it, is, it is what it is. That's locals for you, so.
2: Well, it doesn't help when your mate Jonathan Thurston's on stage at the 2015 Grand Final telling the Prime Minister that Townsville needs a new stadium. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: absolutely, 100%. You know, we get along and... I don't know if everybody knows, but I spoke out about some Indigenous funding that was being used incorrectly at one of the schools where I was from, uh, and I'm I'm just like, man, the integrity of how some of these things actually fold through is being lost. I think over my period of life, you know, you've been told a small lie, and then that becomes the norm, and government continues to do that. I saw a post on LinkedIn and. It's all business people talking there and they're like, how about we make a stand to say that politicians need to be at the same level as CEOs of corporations. You are held to account for the promises that you make and the things that you don't go through on. It is a very good point to be made because at the same time, I look at government and say they're allowed to get away with a lot of things. And certainly in my electorate, we're looking at it at the moment. The two major parties, are throwing so much mud. I'm like, the thing that you're trying to say is that we both are a little dishonest. But the biggest thing you need to be saying is that you both haven't done too much in the last period. That's why you're having a conversation, an arguing match rather than just saying, these are the things that we've done. These are the records that we have. And I think that then goes into the conversation about the KP. Cat Australian Party, Bob has been an outstanding advocate in far north Queensland. Like, and you guys would know, love him or hate him, it has to be said, Bob will be the one standing before the conversation, during the conversation, and after the conversation. And he will remind you the next day when most government people fly in, fly out, and the conversation is done. And like, it's we had that, we spoke about it. You had your chance. It didn't wash, and then we forgot about it. Bob's not that guy. He's the guy that says, "No, no, I'm going to bring that up in three years' time when you most importantly need my support." I'm going to remind you that you didn't do that, and that's what community was asking you about. That that leads into some of the treasurer's comments about the, the budget at the moment. You know, this is a six-week budget, not a four-year one. You know, like we're talking about fuel excess at the moment, which is killing us at this end of the world. You know, not just at the the family Bowser, but I'm talking about transport, the trucks. You know, no, no one's really looking at how the truck industry is going to be hurt at tax time because they changed how the exercise is actually being done just for the period of the election.
0: And the tourists, too. Like, it is a long way from Cairns up, up to the tip. That takes a lot of diesel. And
1: wicked
2: van costs yeah. a lot
0: to fill up.
1: <laughs> it does. <Yeah. laughs> it does. Half of the, uh, the fuel of Australia, which is meant to be, you know, what have got, three days worth of fuel yeah. total. Yeah, well, I reckon one day of that's on the top of a wiki van running around the yeah. Top End, here, so.
0: <laughs> and our reserves uh, for emergencies is over in Texas. I honestly think sometimes diplomacy with
1: international outweighs what's happening on the ground here. And when I say that, and I'm talking about all of Australia, I then have to then I have to make the disclaimer that Queensland, far north Queensland. Is under a second run there, so there's the Australia and then there's Far North Queensland, which is you know people are jumping up and down at the moment, and I and I will openly say places like Bemiger, Torres Strait, Weeper, they've been paying one seventy two dollars for fuel for the last two years. Then the Bowser's in Brisbane reads one seventy, and then someone jumps up and down and says, "Whoa, affordable living!" <laughs> like man, we watch the tankers run past yeah, yeah. The, the tip taking all that fuel down to Brisbane and then they put it on a truck and then bring it back to us. I'm like, they're, they're The forethought of our governments at the moment and the current time of who really can make themselves a sustainable entity is just not happening.
2: You mentioned there, you know, you've got global diplomacy, you've got Australian politics, you've got Queensland politics, and then you've got far north Queensland. You know, it might even be a few rungs below Australia. And then from there, you've also got communities that never get a look in. And the last time a politician visited the Torres Strait was during the Mabo decision. What's going on in some of these remote communities? I want to talk about
1: the islands because you've got quite a few in your electorate. It's such an interesting conversation. And um, I believe that most of those communities are just disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. And you will hear it all the time. It's uh, another dog whistle, like you said. Oh, the communities aren't interested. They don't vote. And I think maybe there's a little bit of honesty in that. You know, there's a bit of honesty. You're looking at it from a different lens. They're not voting because that's their way to protest, to say we're not being heard anyway. We will vote you in because you come with great promises, but when do we see you again? The next election. And and, I, and I'm full advocate of saying make sure that your voice is heard. Make sure that your vote counts because those one votes do lead to a position. I've got candidates here in Cairns at the moment in two major parties saying it's only – it's only a two dog race. No one else matters. And, like, to be honest, if you look at the tail of the tape, that's how it's been since I said the 1950s. They just swap between each other. And we we're at a point, and look at it, how you look at it is, is your own point of view, but we we're at a point where those two voices, so the two major parties, are identical. One is supporting the other, one is in opposition, and one is government. And that's all they're doing. They're not actually. Saying that people need a voice, you know, it was brought up in a uh, in the debate. Um, there is an indigenous voice at the moment in parliament, you know, and it was it was brought up by a, a Torres Strait lady. She said, "If you're voted in, how how are you going to strengthen that?" And it's very important because at the moment, while you have a voice, it's unheard. It's just not being listened to. And the, the incumbent said, "You know, you need to look at the KPIs. You need to look at the codes, the gap strategies." And I'm like, "All right, sitting on the ground." The one thing that I see that is not being looked at because you just you close the gap, which while is very important and a little bit disrespectful in saying that there is a gap, the one thing that's being missed is that the equal rights, the lawful rights of the citizens on the ground here just do not exist. You know, and then people say, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, well, let's have a look at land ownership, not necessarily traditional land ownership, but some of these communities are still living on dogged ground which means that you can't have freehold lease. You can't have personal lease. If you build a house, when your lease runs out, you lose all your wealth. If you have a cattle property at the moment in, in the far north, you actually own only the cattle. But we know that the law suggests that where you run that cattle is the person who owns the land owns the cattle. You know, So like if the state government is owning pastoral land that they're allowing an Indigenous company to run cattle on, it probably suggests that government owned the cattle, not the business that they're allowing run on there. These things lead through to a person having self-esteem within their community. They can stand tall on saying, well, that's mine. I own that. And I've been working alongside you. I haven't been just working a government program because I, I have ownership of that. I am now giving back to the community. And similar with the Torres Straits, it's, It's a very interesting concept, you know, fisheries, how that's all run through, who can get licensing, bits and pieces like that, which makes people become autonomous in their own wealth, their own health, their own education, all of those things spur onto something. So owning a house is a big thing. And I hear it, you know, normal Australia, mainstream Australia is yelling out saying our children should be able to have the right. and I'm like, we don't even have the right to hold land at the moment. Like it's very different conversations that are happening in Canberra to what's happening in Weeper. I'm not picking on Weeper, but they've got a large mine there that continually takes up iron ore and the people are still fighting to have a voice on how that is done. The conversation in Cairns, and you bring up quite rightly Port Douglas and what's actually happening in the Cape and in the Torres Strait, very different. I saw footage in the middle of last year. Yam Island, there was a large, quite a large King Tide. And the salt water was running to the middle of the island and people were frantic. Where was the government then? Because there's a flood down there in Brisbane and in, in Sydney at the moment and they're everywhere. Conversations are different.
2: Yeah, you're pointing out you know, something that a lot of people down in the Canberra political class wouldn't actually even consider is that North Queensland is a tale of two cities. And in fact, Australia in itself is a tale of two cities. You seem to have some refreshing ideas and you know you're bringing them to the table as a third party on these debates. What are you? What are you feeling in the electorate? You're talking to uh, you know a lot of communities that aren't heard. Yeah. So I'm imagining there's a, a, a lot of support there when you start saying things that they want to hear, or saying things that are addressing the issues they have. What are you feeling? Are you getting a pat on the back in these towns you pull into? Are you, are you getting
1: those nods? Uh, look, uh, to be fair, uh, I'm going to just say Far North Queensland. i not decided yet. Yeah. Um, I think at the moment, similar to me, I, I will sit and I will listen. I'm happy to listen to anybody. Same with the everyday Queenslander, I believe. We're going to sit down and we're going to break bread. At the moment, I think the government and, and final Queensland, we say I'm just going to say constituents because voting doesn't really mean anything. But the constituents are saying look, at the moment, they're not even listening. Yeah. I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I have been traveling in the Cape and the Torres Strait and I will do such for the next couple of weeks. So. If anyone's listening to this, if you see me around, come up and have a say good day. But um, people are saying that they're sick of being spoken down to. The government says this is what you require, but realistically, on the ground, they're like, that's not even meeting the mark of where we are, or it's so off target, you've missed the target totally. Like I bring it back to the water, the water conversation here in Cairns about population growth. At the moment, there's a conversation around agricultural growth. And also population growth, but the government that we have standing at the moment just is saying water. It's water, you know, like it, it's not. They're very different, and one can't be done without the other because that the one that's underdone will make the other fall over. As I was saying, like it's big picture stuff, and at the moment we have a government that's thinking about only the next six weeks. And if they're doing that the entire term, only for the next six weeks, this is a rug. Situation: the carpet is dirty. Quickly throw something on top of it. It's a conversation that I think far north Queenslanders and Queensland as a whole are very used to, and they're looking at the moment to see what the next step is. We get confused with the idea because we have the, the party saying, "Well, it's a main party; an independent can't do anything." My conversation is just have a look across. The border into the Kennedy electorate, you know, Bob. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's not even been. He's not even speaking on our behalf, but he's here, holding the people that should be accountable, and he's only doing that because he actually cares for you. He actually wants to see things happen, and that's where we need to be. I'm like, the parties are important, and don't get me wrong. Cat Australia Party, they have their policies, but we understand that we have to stand together because on your own you get picked off by some of these larger beasts and they're not, not so nice when you're actually on the ground trying to get things done.
0: Yeah, well, it isn't like the Prime Minister is coming over to David Littleproud's office and knocking on his door and asking what he can do for the people of the Maranoa to get his vote on some policy. He's coming to Bob's office and saying, what can I do for you... To get your vote on this and he'll say oh I want air conditioning in every school in Kennedy and they say no worries Bob is there anything else you want he's like yep I'll have a dam I'll have some railway please and then that's why in Kennedy and in parts of Townsville they have all this new infrastructure is because they've got Bob there to advocate for them, and he's got so much power as an independent entity in the House of Representatives.
2: He has more power than the Deputy Prime Minister would in his own electorate because he, he, at the end of the day, can decide and be the final vote, and in many cases throughout his career, he's decided who the government is.
1: Absolutely, and you guys have articulated it quite well how Bob is able to influence, and um, certainly I've been saying if we could just for a moment fathom a similar voice side by side at the boundary of Kennedy and Leichhardt. You know, we, we start moving to that idea that we, we can stand on our own autonomously, it will happen a lot quicker than you think. And the other thing that I'll add to that is that the political conversation is, all right, if you're gonna be the independent, who will you side with? Because I'm gonna choose the party and I want to know that you're going to side with them. And it's exactly how Bob says, it's not that. It's about who's gonna come and side with us. Because as an independent, we have a very strong voice. And what does that mean? It means that the constituents of our electorate have a very strong voice. It's not about – I know it seems like about Bob, but he'll tell you he's the first one. He's not a workhorse. He's one of the show ponies. But at the back end of it, you have to recognize that the work that he's doing only elevates and amplifies the voice of the community. And you see it such as the programs that have fallen on the ground.
0: Quickly, uh, before we go, Rod, I think the last time we saw Bob in uh, Cloncurry, he was telling us that his boy Robbie, he could have been the next best thing in rugby league in this country, but he gave it all up to go into politics. Now, you're about the same kind of vintage as Robbie, playing together in North Queensland as young fellas. Was Bob right in saying that uh, Robbie was going to be the next uh, Wally Lewis?
2: The next Rod Jensen?
1: i always had this conversation. <laughs> it's an
0: interesting one. There's only one Jonathan Thurston.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, everyone everyone does their time and everyone has their journey. And I know that's sitting on the fence, boys, but when you say that you were going to be the one, you were either the one or you were a different one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when you came in, Rod Jensen was going to be only Rod Jensen. And I said, I said it before. I was very, very fortunate that I didn't have legacy. I see a lot of the lot of the footy players now that I played footy with and who were legends of my era and the era before. their sons now going through and they're having to live up to the uh, the legacy and um it crosses all borders in that sense, you know, like Bob and Robbie are going through their thing at the moment. and you know I'd, I'd really like to just steer people to the idea of how cat has started and where it's heading to. and I think that as we move forward in the future, that there is really strong leadership in that next level down. And there will never be Bob.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a legacy that will be
1: had. But remember, the person that's coming after will always be the next one. There won't be the one. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. they will be the next one so and and saying that if anyone's listening out at Concurry I don't know if you guys remember me but I really appreciate my time out there battle of the Mines out there running around with the guys in the dust and the dirt and the heat absolutely wonderful community looked after me exceptionally well I hope that I've done you proud when I came out there, there Was always a couple of beers at the local pub and, and a lot of footy being played so you know, just a shout out to the guys out at Concurry
2: Well, mate, um, you've given a very, very modest and humble answer to us asking whether Robbie Catter was shit at rugby league.
1: (laughs) Uh, Because I I believe I wasn't the best. I believe I wasn't the best. And there's that many people come up to me and say, you had a stellar career. And I was like... I don't know if you were watching. Uh, <laughs> Pat Richards' palms still in my chest from 2005. Uh, my yeah. brother will never let me forget it. You know, so.
2: I'll tell you one person that would say that Robbie was um, a world beater was uh, Chris Afuli, the Queensland leader of the opposition. He reckons he got folded by him in some comp up there in, uh, as young blokes.
1: <laughs> I appreciate your time, boys. And, uh, look, the rugby league stories are what they are. Uh, I'm pretty sure in, in 20 years' time I'm going to be in a bar somewhere and someone's going to tell me, hey, I was much better than you. You should never have played.
2: So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mate, um, thank you for joining us today. It's uh, it's interesting to hear KAP's plans for Far North Queensland and your plans
1: yourself. Rod, all the best with the campaign, mate. Gentlemen, I appreciate your time today. And to all your listeners, you know, what a great podcast. Keep supporting them. Good work getting the message out there, guys. Thank you very much.